This is part 13 in our subject study in the book of Hebrews, how sin ruins life, not just religion. How sin ruins life, not just religion. We need the constant reminder from the writer of Proverbs that wisdom is never dispensed with just the idea of making people smarter or making people more religious. The writer of Proverbs would have been surprised to learn that in years to come, his Proverbs would have been seen as religious documents. They were written primarily to tell people how to live, how to discover life that is full and rich and satisfactory, not in church life, but life life. These were practical proverbs written by practical writers. They weren't sayings that were composed for classroom discussion or or debate. The reason we need to emphasize that is people don't think of religious instruction as being practical all that often. Religion is for churches, seminaries, it's not, for, it's not for artists and musicians and lovers and stockbrokers and homemakers and sheet metal workers and lawyers. And so today's study centers on a term that has probably lost its deepest meaning in our world. Sin. Sharing in the class, we're going through uh, we're going through Second Peter in my Christian Ed class now. Just started this morning, and Peter in the opening chapters of opening verses of chapter one talks about escaping the corruption that is in the world through evil desires or lust. Escaping the corruption that is in the world through evil desires. And so I just started talking to the class a little bit about what, like, what is wrong with our world? If you've watched the news just this, this past week, and we were just kicking around some of the things that are, that are going on. Um, you saw that, that police officer shot in Philadelphia 11 times. Somebody just goes up and shoots through the window. You saw North Korea allegedly testing a hydrogen bomb, more powerful than the atomic bomb. And then this morning on the news, there were the flights of American B-52 bombers over South Korean airspace, but very close to North Korean airspace, sending out some kind of a message there, just that military presence. And you have the situation in the Middle East. We had Saudi Arabia that executed that Shiite um, leader, the Amman there, the Shiite Amman, and, of course, Iran. That's predominantly Shiite. And they're all upset with Saudi Arabia, and so they've made attacks on embassies and banned them from the country. And then all of the surrounding nations are against Iran. Um, That's a very explosive situation. 
You have uh, just recently, I don't know if you heard, but uh, in the U.S. Senate, every Democrat in the U.S. Senate, 100% of them voted in favor of abortion up to nine months. So that's right up to the second of birth. Not some of them, all of them voted in favor. So it's partial birth abortion that they all vote for. And then you have the Anglican Church in England now calling for a resolution and a letter of apology that the stance that the church had taken against homosexuality and same-sex marriage, that, that that isn't right, it's intolerant, and they need to apologize, and the Anglican Church is going to be split because if you see the, the Anglican bishops in Africa are all far more conservative, and they're not going to stand for what's going on in England, and there's just going to be a major rift there. That's in the last seven days. And so you watch, and you say, what, 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 what is... What is wrong with this world? What is happening? What's going on? And only the Bible will give you the honest answer that there's this corruption, that's a big word, that is in the world through evil desires, sinful desires, desires for power, desires for wealth, desires for expansion, desires, the desire to appear tolerant and loving and broad-minded And all of these mixed-up desires, these fallen desires in the heart, this is what the Bible means when it talks about sin. And so, while our world doesn't get it, while they think that sin is just a religious term, a religious problem that Bible-waving religious fanatics can talk about in their spare time, they don't realize that that's, that's what's wrong with this world. So sin doesn't just relate to religion and theology. And it doesn't even just relate to some distant end-time punishment. Even if people agree with that, they don't see how sin relates to Monday morning and Tuesday morning in Ontario. And that's where Proverbs is fascinating when it looks at the subject of sin. Because while Paul writes... Most profoundly, I would think the Apostle Paul gives you uh, the theology of sin, a deep analysis of it. The book of Proverbs deals very bluntly and simply with the relationship between sin and life. Paul will talk about where sin come froms, comes from and, and exposes uh, the workings of it in the human psyche. But Proverbs just says, Here, here's what it does to lives. Most people commit sin without thinking about sin. Most people aren't pondering the nature of sinful bondage from Romans chapter 7. Most people aren't even trying to sin. They just sin as they try to live life in this world. They sin because somewhere along the way they've decided that it works. It is the, it is the, the cultural value system. It's the air we breathe. And we all want life to work. Desperately, we want life to work. And this is the issue that the writers of Proverbs address. So here are some life lessons about sin 
from some of the richest authorities of truth that have ever lived. One, as the passing of time will reveal, sin never increases life. It always diminishes life. Proverbs 12, 3. No one is established by wickedness. But the root of the righteous will never be moved. And immediately, if I were underlining, I'd look at those two words, established in reference to wickedness and roots in reference to righteousness. It's a profound little verse telling us something we will miss if we just look at the immediate, the immediate future in front of us and the surface of life. You won't see the issue of sin and righteousness very clearly. If you just look to the end of your nose and your next decision, there don't appear to be any drastic consequences. In fact, there can appear to be life-enhancing benefits from pursuing something that might not be right but selfishly can, can pull things your way and make things work your way and secure your life and satisfy your life and fulfill your life. But this text says don't look at, don't look at life like that. Uh, look deeply, look long-term. No one is established by wickedness. There are apparent short-term gains in wickedness, but no one is established by it. On the contrary, the root, same thing, the root of the righteous will never be moved. Never be moved, meaning righteousness, righteousness, And it's not talking about in heaven somewhere. In this world, in this life, righteousness establishes your life in a way that wickedness never can. Sin can only generate the appearance and the feel of pleasure. But it can never establish it. In other words, in other words... Nothing that sinful choices, nothing that giving in to sinful desires, nothing that that brings into your life can build quality and joy over the long haul. Sin only satisfies and fills you up the way cotton candy fills you up. But but there's no nutrition there. And then he says, roots only come to a life by righteousness. That's what we we need. Strong roots. And so the writer of Proverbs, he chooses this perfect picture. You, you, You know, one day, believe it or not, it's going to be warm and sunny again. And you're going to go out into your front yard or your backyard, and and even if your eyes are closed. I can walk to the back right-hand corner of my yard with my eyes closed on a spring morning, and I can just breathe in, and it's lilacs. And I can smell them. And I've got roses. But only an idiot will think that those beautiful blossoms come from the branch. I mean, they're on the branch, but they don't come from the branch. They come from what's under the ground. Everything comes from the roots. 
Everything is nourished from the roots up. And so righteousness, the writer says, righteousness feeds and nourishes life. I'm not saying it makes you a billionaire. I'm not saying you don't have any trials. But in terms of a joyful, satisfactory, good life, enjoying the presence of God and life in this world and all that is best and finest to produce contentment of heart, you won't get that following immediate instincts. You will get that by driving roots down into God's holy word, righteousness, good character. Do you know how hard it is to get people to understand that you can't get a good life? Everybody wants a good life. You can't get a good life making bad choices. It's really not rocket science. Let me give you all the counsel you will ever need for the rest of your life. Good choices, even if they're hard to make, good choices equals good life. Bad choices, even if pleasurable to make, equals bad life. It's, it's the roots. A life cannot be established. It can be entertained. It can be amused. It can have moments of laughter in wickedness, but it can't be established. There's nothing there that's going to stand, last, produce. Righteousness, well, that's like roots. See, the reason I go out, I, I mentioned the garden. The reason you go out and you look at your garden right now and it doesn't look very beautiful, at least mine doesn't. But it's going to be okay. You know why I know it's going to be okay? Because the roots are there. And that's what establishes everything about a future, about potential, about beauty. What roots are to botanical life, righteousness is to human life. Sin is the ultimate deception. It is artificial. It may start with excitement, but it turns stale very, very quickly. Very quickly. And so the wise person, the person interested now, I'm not talking about going to heaven. That's obviously true. I'm just talking about this earthly life. The wise person interested in life will lift his eyes above the deceptive first impressions that sin and the media and the advertisers can stimulate, the wise person will think long-term and he will strive to live above the primitive instincts of this culture and he will establish his life with roots of righteousness. Two. The Bible exposes the underhanded nature of sinful pursuits and warns of a time of open, sudden destruction of the wicked. Now this is looking farther down the road, all right? Proverbs 6, 12 to 15. These are such stern words. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, 
devises evil, continually sowing discord. Stop. You, you read 12, 13, and 14, and everything in those verses points to the way wickedness works, the way we deceive ourselves and the way we deceive others. There's this picture of a, a shifty person. It's signals, it's motions, it's deception. It's saying things that aren't really meant. It's denying things that are true. It's cagey. It's clever. It isn't what you think it is. This is a person who's shifty, who gets his way, who gets other people in trouble while he himself doesn't get in trouble, who gets what he wants no matter what the cost is to somebody else, and he can cover his tracks so nobody knows, and it's just all this way. It's fulfillment. He's getting his way. He's shifty, and it doesn't look like, see, crooked speech, winks, signals, and he convinces himself that he's getting away with it. Do you get it? He convinces himself he's getting away with it. He's fooling himself and he's fooling everybody else. He is making this work. Now keep reading, 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. We should take verses like this very seriously because of their harsh tone, the unusually harsh tone. A worthless person. I don't think I've ever called anybody that. A worthless person. The wicked man. And maybe, maybe it's not meant just as that insult. Worthless. Maybe it's worth. Less. How sin sucks the worth out of a person, and they were worth less than they would be worth if they were righteous. It, it creates a void, even when this winking, shifty, clever person thinks he's filling himself up, he's draining himself. winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet, 13 and 14. So openness, honesty go out the window. That, that is what happens, you know. Wickedness, wickedness in the heart of anyone. Wickedness in the heart of, of, of a, a Christian person who tries to sort of cover his sin. Sin turns us into shifty cowards. It, it puts people into hiding from God and the truth. It takes great energy to be a shifty sinner and dodge conscience and hide from God and cover tracks before people it takes incredible energy. It's tiring. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. So sin takes this incredible amount of energy, and it's all wasted energy. But, but something else happens. While sin grows and generates deception, its end will be sudden and dramatic. Look at Proverbs six fifteen. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be beyond all healing. If sin grows 
gradually it will be punished climactically and suddenly. The sinner won't see it coming. Whatever form the judgment takes, it will be drastic. Let me give you some ways in which this calamity will come suddenly. A, God can remove his convicting presence from the life. Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We hear those words so often that it's the words we hear so frequently quickly lose their edge. Acknowledging God isn't, isn't saying the Lord's Prayer or singing songs about how much you love Him. Acknowledging God is, is uh, giving Him access into the decision-making process of your life. Acknowledging His, his, his rulership, His lordship, His reign, his sovereignty. That's acknowledging God. And, and it works like this. You go down a certain path. And I'm talking now about people like us, okay, in the church. You go down a certain path and, and suddenly there's some kind of temptation, some kind of compromise that, that looms on the horizon. And while you're faithful and dedicated and avoid sin in all sorts of areas... There, we all have our weak spots and we all have our blind spots. And here's just something that fits our character, fits our nature, answers to something in our circumstances, and so we justify it. It answers to something in our circumstances at that moment, and so we justify it. And God speaks and says, Don, you've been following me long enough to know better than that. Have you ever had God say that to you? Has God ever spoken to you and said, Don? No, he would probably use. And you can, you can press ahead. He's very gracious and very faithful. And usually he, his, his work is strong enough to draw us back to shame and repentance and a return of the joy of the Lord. But what about people that just absolutely refuse to acknowledge God when he speaks? Here's what happens. It says that God speaks, God tries to correct, God tries to work, but what happens is as they don't listen, the bondage gets deeper, and then it says God gave them up to a debased mind. And if I could tell you the number of times people have talked to me and said these words... I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. Did you hear it? I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. There's something terrible happens when the Holy Spirit lifts his hand from your mental processing, folks. Something frightening happens. When, when, when the way the Holy Spirit works in all of us now to bring about repentance and enlightenment and to encourage and to correct and his word that brings instruction, Paul says, and reproof and rebuke and correction. When all of that starts to grow dim, then, then, then the darkness is such that you, you can't even understand why you're acting the way you're acting and you can't see any way out. And then remember those words, no life will be established in wickedness. 
So God can remove his convicting presence from the life. That's one way that calamity and judgment comes. Secondly, God can turn a deaf ear to their prayer for help and grace. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Please don't misread that verse. It doesn't mean you earn answers to your prayer by your moral perfection. That's not what it means. What it does mean is the heart that, the heart that doesn't acknowledge God and finds spiritual life shutting down, it's just natural, like Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin and they run and hide from God. There's no fellowship. There's no communion. But the person, righteous isn't moral perfection. Righteous is, is uh, a humble acknowledging, an awareness of bringing of the whole life before God, yielding to live it on his terms. That kind of a person says God hears their prayers. There's a saying that floats around the church. It has... It has the credence of Scripture, but it isn't true. How many times have you heard it? God answers all our prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. I've heard that since I was five years old, and I want to stand up and scream once in a while. It's not true. The Bible talks about all sorts of prayers that God doesn't hear, where he turns his back. If I regard iniquity in my heart, David says. doesn't say the Lord will not answer me. That would be bad enough. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's another way judgment can come. Third, another way that calamity and judgment come suddenly, even though the deception of sin comes gradually... Sinners will be finally and completely judged when Jesus comes again. I hope we never stop reading these verses. Revelation 20, 12 to 15, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There will come judgment one day. There will come judgment i got to hurry. Point number three. We're almost done. Well, close. Not only does sin cut off true life, but it blinds the sinner to the source of his own trouble while it binds him more tightly in it. I've already mentioned that phrase. I don't understand what's wrong with me. I don't understand what I'm doing. Proverbs 4.19 The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You ever have that experience? You get up in the dark, you're going to the washroom in the middle of the night, you don't want to wake anybody up, you don't put any lights on, and you think you've gauged where the end of the bed is, and as you turn that corner, you slam your toe right into that thing, and then you go... They do not know over what they stumble. 
And so you look at this world. Just think of all the things I mentioned at the beginning. And all that is is a little smattering. I mean, you know, the, the, the bulk of wickedness in this world. My goodness. But by and large, this world doesn't know why it's all there. They don't know what's happening. We do our best. We create laws and policies and make political decisions and military decisions. And, 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 and we do all that we can. But all we're doing is managing, trying to stop the bleeding of this world. Isn't it? That's what we do. Cope somehow. But they don't know, they don't know over what they're stumbling. This planet in rebellion to its creator. This is what sin does. Until you're prepared to face it with an absolutely honest and costly repentance, you'll never be able to figure out. Sin not only binds, it, it blinds. And we will usually look for solutions anywhere but at the cross of Jesus Christ. Four. The stain and power of sin cannot be removed by increased zeal in worship. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-seven. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? What would the evil intent be? Well, the evil intent would be we come with our sacrifice, we come to worship in the Old Testament context, and everybody comes, and if I don't come, everybody knows that my heart isn't right. But if I come and offer the sacrifice, you'll never know that my heart isn't right. Now, we don't do that anymore. And I'm not saying there's the same kind of evil intent, but there, but there can come into my heart and into your heart. If there's some point where we know, I mean, sin doesn't hopefully reign in any of our hearts, but there's this slice where sin dominates. This, this little slice. Jesus all over here, Jesus all over there, and here, me. And my way, and something that I want, and something that's important to me. But I don't want you to think that all of this part of my life isn't holy and good. And I can, and I can, uh, I can come up here and do Bible studies, and you can stand and worship, and we can go to prayer meetings, we can do all that stuff, and no one will ever know. Jesus is talking to Don Horbin, and he's not listening. You'll never know. And I cannot increase the passion of my spiritual pursuit in any other area of life enough to compensate for one point of disobedience. How much of my heart does the Lord want? Well, he wants it all. He wants it all. And it's interesting to me that Proverbs 21, 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? It's, it's what more could God do to address specifically not just wicked people but religious sinners? But talk about the way they bring their sacrifices. He seems to be pinpointing people like us. People who want to cling to God in general and some specific point of neglect. At the same time. And the idea, of course, is, and it's not to belittle worship in any way, shape, or form, but the idea is that worship 
Worship isn't automatically cleansing without bringing sin to the cross of Jesus Christ. Worship isn't automatically cleansing without bringing my sin repentantly to the cross of Jesus Christ. Five. We are never to envy those who persist in their sin, even if they seem to be enjoying the good life in this world. Proverbs 24, 1 and 2. Man, when I started looking at the references to sin and wickedness, you could do this until next Thursday. They're just all over in Proverbs. So I just, just be grateful. Proverbs 24, 1 and 2. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. The cause, why would anybody envy wicked people? Well, you can, you can envy wicked people when they appear to be getting away with their sinfulness. When it seems to be working. Particularly if, if the, the outward apparent success of wickedness comes at exactly the same time as a time of your righteous loss, suffering, persecution. And, and the scales don't seem fair. And then it's very easy in moments like that to at least just for a moment, you never say it out loud, but you think, what, what am I getting for this? So the source of that distorted envy, it can be our tendency to look at life short-term rather than long-term. Proverbs 37, 1 to 4. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. We might think, if you just read that phrase, that he means don't worry about people who do evil to you. But that's not what he's talking about. Not in that passage. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So what he's talking about is getting upset because why, why doesn't God do something with these wicked people? They seem to get away with murder. They will soon fade like the grass. Remember? No life can be established in wickedness. They will soon fade like the grass, wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That last verse has to be the most misquoted verse in the entire Bible. The way we interpret it is, delight yourself in the Lord and you get what you want. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And that's not it. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what he gives you is not the object of your desires. What he gives you is The desires. Delight in the Lord and he will give you good desires. You will delight in good things. You will want what God wants. So it's not rub the lamp and the genie comes out. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will put desires in you that you'll never envy the prosperous wicked in a million years. Because what you long for, what God will give you is a set of desires so vastly greater and higher that you could never be content with the goals of their desires in a million years. He'll give you better desires. Six, and this is the last one. Sin can never be cleansed out of our system while we cover it up. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions 
will not prosper. Remember the guy that he winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his finger, he's clever, he's deceptive. Calamity is going to come upon him. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The way that works, of course, many centuries later, with the full and he will obtain mercy. It almost sounds like a New Testament verse, doesn't it? He confesses it will find mercy. Because God knew what was coming, what was happening through Christ. And so John, and this is the last quote, with greater grandeur and meaning, John thinks about sin. 1 John 1, 8 to 10, if we say we have no sin... You have to confess your sin. That's the Proverbs verse. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. How do we deceive ourselves? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And and here's the deal. It, It has to do with that Romans passage where God gives them over to a debased mind. Remember, we talked about that. Okay, so if we say we have no sin and you keep projecting that lie into your system, you will come to the place where you won't see your sin as sinful anymore. Anybody can do it. You, you only feel guilty about sin for so long. And if you keep just playing the tape, I have no sin. This isn't wrong. Everybody's doing it. I went out with people from the church. They do the same thing. I don't feel as guilty anymore as I used to. And I can rationalize it and I can explain it. And later on, I can even ask God for forgiveness if I really think I need it. And so you play the tape. This isn't sin. This isn't sin. And here's what happens. You will believe it. You will believe it. And the truth is not in us. Debased mind takes over. Here's a better route. If we confess our sins... Why would you not confess sin? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who doesn't want that? What kind of misguided deception is this that a person would rather hold on to his guilt than be rid of it? Given the shortness of life and the length of eternity, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There, that's a quick study. A lot of the things that the book of Proverbs says about sin. Just remember that opening verse. Whatever appearances are, no life will be established by wickedness. Righteousness, that's the roots. And everything that you can't even see yet, everything you can't even see yet that God wants to make beautiful in your life will come from honoring and following him, even if nobody else does. And everyone said, let's pray.